Welcome to ACA Media, the podcast of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. Wow, you have been practicing. I got every word right. Well, I've had a while. It's been it's been a while. Like every word. Yeah. I, I have Society for Cinema and Media Studies written down. The ACA Media part, I just remembered. In 72-point font. I yeah, right. The eyes are going. I actually do have to go to the eye doctor soon. I go every year because I have contacts and they require it. It's like state law to get new contacts. I've been rolling along with like the same prescription for a while now, but it's uh, I got a problem. Because now I'm having the, um, you know, the eye doctor last time set it up where I can, um, you know, one eye is geared towards seeing close and the other eye is geared towards seeing far to help, you know, it's like the equivalent of bifocals. But I'm not seeing real good close. And then uh, I failed one of the distance uh, things on my driver's license test. I had to get the new real ID. And it wasn't just like that I couldn't read the letters. Like, I didn't even respond. The, you know, the person running the eye test, you know, I did the, the left eye and then you know, I just kind of sat there quietly and she's like, all right, what are the letters? And I'm like, what? Because all I saw was white boxes. And she's like, the letters. I'm like, oh, there are no letters. And I thought it might be- Get off my lawn! I thought it might be one of those tricks, you know, like sometimes the eye doctor will do to make sure you're, you know, you're being honest. And like, no, there were letters there. So I have a provision on my license now um, where I have to have my side mirrors intact. There's a thing. There's a note, you know, like a requirement now that my side mirrors have to be intact. Well, nobody in Indiana will enforce that. No, I thought that would be a thing anyway. Yeah, it kind of seems like it should be. So, yeah. Oof. So yeah, I'm 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 getting old. Just turned fifty. Gotta gotta sign up for my shingles vaccine now. Which PSA? Sign up for your shingles vaccine. Once you're fifty, your insurance will cover it. And I have a friend who just got it turned fifty a month before me, and she's got sh- shingles and she's Ooh. miserable. So oh, that's bad. That's bad. Get yep. it? I got mine. I'm older than you a little. Uh, right. Um. Yeah. Here we are talking Welcome about our back. shingles Welcome vaccines. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome, young listeners, to all the things you'll have to look forward to. My goodness. <laughs> I get very cranky. <laughs> well, let's get cranky about oh, I got a lot lists of, cranky here. of best sitcoms. Uh, oh, my God. Let's, okay, so set it yeah. up. Yeah, so we've got a treat for you this episode. We've got two segments, of course. And first of all, Bill Kirkpatrick. Uh, is uh, moonlighting for us, if that's the right word, uh, doing an interview for us. I think he's not moonlighting. He's found his true voice. Mm, He has. And in fact, you're going to hear from him multiple times over the next year because he's going to do a series, Better Know a Sig. And if you don't know what a SIG is, you are a very young scholar. You're just getting started in SCMS. That's Scholarly Interest Group in the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And so he has started at the top. So this is uh, chair of the Scholarly Interest Group Coordinating Committee, and that is Dimitri Latsis. So uh, we learn a lot about how these work and the kind of issues that are at stake for SIGs. And then we move on. To getting cranky. Yep, a whole bunch of cranky academics, a whole table, a round table full of them. And this is in regard to the 100 best sitcoms of all time list released by Rolling Stone. This came out back in May. And I should note this conversation you're going to hear happened, I believe, in late June, early July. So apologies for, you know, keeping this uh, sitting for so long. But we had 
a lot of things going on, including uh, cats eating my microphone cord, you know. They're brutal, 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 fierce beasts. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't, who knew microphone cords were so tasty? I just didn't know. So uh, I apparently have to put those in a cabinet along with the cat treats, hide those away. Um, but so, yeah, so we had some delays. But um, this was brought to us by Phil Sapansky, Assistant Professor of Film and Television, School of Communication and the Arts at Marist College. So he saw this list released and probably got a little cranky and decided he would reach out to some other uh, comedy scholars who could then deconstruct this list in a very academic way. And so, and you know, they don't swear as much as I might think they would. That's true. Yeah. They left room for us, so that's good. (laughs) So tune in after the roundtable to hear Michael swear a lot. And uh, the participants introduced themselves at the start of the episode, but just so you know who's coming, in addition to Phil, you'll be hearing from Cather Foley-Seeley, who is the William P. Hobby Centennial Professor of Communication and Radio Television Film at the University of Texas at Austin, Al Martin, who is an Assistant Professor in Communication Studies at University of Iowa, Matt Sinkowitz, who is Associate Professor and Chairperson of the Communication Department at Boston College, and Jacqueline Johnson, who is a PhD student in the Division of Cinema and Media Studies at USC. So a lot of fantastic people you're going to hear from today. All right. Uh, are we going to start with SIGs? We are going to start with SIGs. All right. Take it, SIG, man, Bill. Hi, this is Bill Kirkpatrick, producer at large for the ACA Media podcast, and I'm joined today by Dimitri Latsis, current chair of the Scholarly Interest Group Coordinating Committee within the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. Dimitri is Assistant Professor of Film Studies in the School of Image Arts at Ryerson University in Toronto, uh, although soon to be moving to University of Alabama, and he specializes in film history and archival studies, and he's in the middle of his term chairing the coordinating committee. Dimitri, welcome to Acamedia. Thank you, Bill. I have to say I'm a fan of the program, and and, uh, thank you for all the work you do uh, with um, scholars and with the society. It's really, I think... Sort of glue for the year-round aspect of the association. Oh, thank you. That's nice to hear. And as you know, as the official podcast of SCMS, we are starting a series on better know a SIG. So, trying to help listeners better understand the structure and diversity of opportunities within SCMS. And so, we just wanted to start at the top with you at the SIG Coordinating Committee and and just learn some of the basics. So, for example, maybe let's just start there. What is a scholarly interest? Group and what is the role of the Scholarly Interest Group Coordinating Committee? Sure. The special interest groups are a mechanism that the society has next to the caucuses, or cauci, I guess would be the proper plural <laughs> form, yes. to um, gather members around their interests, in other words, subject interest. And these go back, as I understand it, to the early 2000s or late 90s when the society was still SDS and it, it started having. Uh, the special interest groups, I think television and the Oscar Michaud Society was some of the first. And these have since proliferated to, you know, more than a couple dozen. And and really is one of the aspects of the society that's grown along with the membership and with the attendance of the annual conference to such extent that, I mean, we we'll, can talk about it, it, it's a little bit of a victim of its own success in, in the proliferation of interest. And um, on the one hand, it is something that's... Um, People do follow, so I know a lot of people plan their conference attendance, uh, checking the sponsorships that each SIG has of of a panel or of a a workshop. But on the other hand, you know, it it varies widely. And so the society 
doesn't have a whole lot of funding to provide to its SIG. I think it's around $500. And, you know, most members only interact with SIGs during the conference. Some SIGs tend to have more extensive activities, especially in the past couple of years, they have established graduate student funding programs or SA contests and, and so forth. And so in this sort of ecosystem, the SIG CC, the coordinating committee is a forum to sort of um, uh, gather the chairs of the SIGs, connect them with the liaison, and each SIG group is it has their own liaison to the board, and get their feedback about structural and organizational issues more so. In other words, what are their concerns? I can talk about some of them. What are some of the improvements they would like to see to do their job easier? Clarify some of SMS's policies to them. And just generally represent their voice in uh, in the larger organization. So, what exactly is the difference between a scholarly interest group, a SIG, and a caucus? Those differences, I'm not, I'm not clear on what those differences are. Can you explain that? Right. Yes, uh, that's that's a great question, and it, it's not clear to all members, especially newer members, uh, right off the bat. Um, I mean, a SIG, you can think of it as a field specific association based on the subject matter of what it is you do or focus as a researcher and teacher and student, right? So it varies from, you know, silent cinema, Latino cinemas, there's geographic affiliations, there is uh, media affiliations, right? There's radio SIG, there is a new media SIG. And then uh, a caucus is based more on identity. In other words, the the identities that members affiliate with themselves personally, right? And so we have Women's Caucus and uh, uh, various other, uh, you know, LGBT uh, caucus and, and uh, other organizations that are more along those uh, lines and don't only discuss content issues, but also discuss diversity and representation issues more broadly within the society of the members. In other words, in addition to what we study, what, who we are ourselves. Okay. And you mentioned that the SIGs tend to interact with each other primarily at the conferences, although it seems like in some ways the pandemic has been sort of a boon. I know that the SIGs that I belong to have actually done more activities, more kind of Zoom seminars and things like that in the past year than I recall in all the years I've been at SEMS uh, generally. So I'm just wondering, what would SCMS like the SIGs to be doing? And how do the SIGs contribute generally to the strength of SCMS um, besides just being a place where people can meet once a year? Yes. No, uh, this is the crux of the matter, right? I mean, it it is, rather than creating more and more groups and proliferate the bureaucracy, how can they function? And, you know, kind of collaboration is one of the ways, right? And we see a lot of SIGs collaborating and pooling their money and resources to host special events. And, you know, for instance, uh, belongs to the Silent Cinema SIG that was held a number of events, you know, almost every other year with Cinemart, the Cinema and the Other Arts SIG, right? And so co-sponsoring panels or, you know, in older times in person kind of organizing tours of archives and facilities in the city we're visiting. And so this is, this is a great case. The other thing is kind of pooling money to support graduate students and, you know, precarious scholars to, to come to the conference. There are a number of things that used to be true that no longer are, and we are hearing often from chairs of SIGs. For instance, the ability to sponsor their own panels and get, the, get a guarantee that they will get in. 
And of course, as the society has grown, this has been more and more hard to maintain. You know, it used to be that each SIG you know, had a mechanism among its members, and that is true of other societies. I know, for instance, you know, College Art Association, that you know, each special interest group within that society chooses a meeting, right? And people apply to the SIG first, and then the SIG proposes it formally to the society and it is guaranteed or almost guaranteed to get in. Or at least the ability to organize sidebar events, right? If their special event doesn't get in so that there is some way for them to hold an event anyways. And I think in the last in-person conference, there was such a mechanism, even though it wasn't included in the print program, the official program, nonetheless, there was some sort of place on the website or on the app that people could see these sidebar events, right? That, that SIGs. Uh, so that they can function sort of like their own entities, really, um, outside of SEMS. And then it's a matter of time and resources, really. I mean, you know, uh, as I mentioned, you know, if you imagine that, uh, you know, SEMS, I mean, film and media studies as a whole used to, you know, be a SIG of, uh, of um, Modern Language Association, right, the MLA, and it still exists. It's called the Film Caucus or something like that. Uh, and now we have our own society with our own SIGs, right? And so this is this kind of... Um, embarrassment of riches in a way, but, you know, people sometimes do tend to get lost within this ecosystem. So I think, yes, it's, it's sort of, like I said, connectivity between them, more resources, more clear direction and, you know, uh, outreach to the board and, and then also the ability to organize their own sort of events. Um, can I come back real quickly to this idea of SIGs being able to endorse a panel or or guarantee a panel? What is SEMS's resistance to that, since it is a model that works for other societies? And do you see us actually moving toward a, a maybe even in a limited way, uh, SIGs having more control over the conference program? Yes, that's a good point. Uh, and I'm of two minds here. I think the organization is also torn. Uh, it might have been easier when it was a 1,000 or 1,200 person conference, but we're in this middle spot here, which also makes it more difficult to, to ask you know, the, the board to, to book hotels and organize. You know, we're not as big as MLA, but we're not as small as other societies. So we're in that middle spot, which makes it harder to do anything. And you know, when you have to organize 20 plus streams, simultaneously for the conference, plus on top of that, have three or four boardrooms, four meetings, you know, that does make it more difficult to get slots and guarantee sort of admission. So that's the first thing. The other thing is on the merits, should every state have, you know, should we reserve 30 some spots for panels? That would mean that, you know, we would kind of outsource some of the admission evaluation to the SIGs and the board might want to have some oversight to that to guarantee uniformity of standards because, you know, I mean, the society, and I've served on program committees as well, the society does have some standards, you know, two people reviewing each panel and so forth. So how would that work with the SIG doing that internally, right? Would it fragment into, you know, 30 different processes? On the other hand, yes, I do think that there is room for SIGs, especially if they co-sponsor something, to have them somehow guaranteed because, you know, I remember very good events that were sponsored with the old system that SIGs brought in museum directors or they brought in archivists. And it was, you know, very interesting. These are people or filmmakers that would not otherwise have come in maybe at STMS. And I think the key here might be this two separate stream, right? So 
I think they've announced that for Chicago, there will be both in person and a different pair of dates where people that don't want to be in person can be online. And so that creates more space, although, you know, digital infrastructure and all of that is also not for free and it is resource intensive. It might be a solution so that we can have more slots and, and that SIGs can have a voice. But again, this is something that, you know, we need to be discussed with the board and make sure that it won't have a negative impact on the graduate students and underrepresented groups, because usually the people that chair SIGs and, you know, do show up and do choose are usually mid-career people. And so, you know, we don't want to create an impression that, you know, people themselves kind of choose what they like and then people are excluded. But I, I do think there's room for more in the, on this. Yeah. That comes back to that question of uh, the proliferation of SIGs that, that you briefly touched on as well. So one gets the feeling as a member that SCMS generally is kind of resistant to too many SIGs, like we shouldn't have a SIG for absolutely everything. You know, what happens if we have too many opportunities for people to kind of hive off into their own specific interests? But I'm also learning, thanks to this conversation, more about the structural issues and the pragmatic issues and the logistical issues. So I guess my question would be, am I right to understand that SCMS is is a little reluctant to see too many SIGs blossoming, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom? And if so, how much of that do you see as being kind of the cohesiveness of the institution, cohesiveness of the field, and how much of that is being driven by resources? You know, how much money we can donate to the SIGs for their coffee and donuts, or, or how many rooms do we have at the conference? Those sorts of questions. That's right. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it is it's both a logistical and a, let's say, scientific or, you know, curricular, you know, kind of issue. Uh, and as they said, it is a sign of health, you know, that you have a proliferation, you know, because the field does contain multitudes. We don't want to somehow seed new media or seed, you know, digital humanities to other organizations. We want to own that with respect to moving image studies, you know, more broadly or media studies. On the other hand, you do see, yes, this, this cycle of SIGs that usually perhaps there are exceptions to this larger SIGs, but usually, you know, there's enthusiasm, but usually the enthusiasm kind of... Um, wanes, right? And people show up in the conference only to keep the, the thing going just barely. There's also the issue of currency, right? And, and the, 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 the way fields changes very fast nowadays. So something like videographic criticism that I'm very interested in myself might not exist in this particular form, right? In 10 years from now. So uh, it is very much an issue of resources. It is, it is an issue of duplication of efforts in some cases, right? So, so if it makes sense to combine why not do that? And it is an issue more generally with just knowing who we are, right? I mean, the society undertook last year to, to do a polling of the members with regard to diversity and to inclusion and all these things. And that was, you know, an eye opener. It was the first time something like this was done. I think it behooves us at some point, uh, electronically or otherwise, to do a survey of our field interests, right? And, and understand what PhDs are produced, what, you know, are the areas of interest of members, used to be more manageable to do that. Now it's less so because SCMS has also an international sort of mandate, which we can talk about. But it's this idea of who we are determines, you know, what resources the organization is going to put behind. And so if there are emergent areas of interest, I'm just going to, you know, hypothesize here if it's animation is something, you know, that is more and more of interest, or if another area is less and less of interest, we can maybe reallocate resources based on that, on what we get from data like that. 
because there is there's great also skepticism to keep it equitable, right? So there was a big debate, for instance, if SIGs are going to be able to collect dues from members. This is one of the issues that we dealt with a couple of years ago. And if they're going to be, it's going to be mandated or if it's going to be at the discretion of the SIG to do it. And a lot of them voted to not collect members, but have their own fundraising. And some of them did, you know, vote to collect. So, you know, that makes it very uneven. And, and I will say with regard to internationalization, it might seem more obvious that caucuses drive this because they're more ethnic you know, related or, or geography based. And so, for instance, Latin American cinemas or European French cinemas and so forth. But SIGs also can play a role as well, right? I mean, there, there is societies both in the UK and Australia and France and many other countries that deal with audiovisual media and scholarship on, on new media and, and traditional media. And so we haven't seen much effort to reach out to them and co-organize things. You know, if you remember a couple of years back, the SMS was contemplating, you know, on the one hand, uh, plenaries, right, multiple plenaries, and some of these did happen with the precarious caucus and the press conference. On the other hand, maybe year-round smaller regional conferences. And that's something we have to come back to. And SIGs can have a role in this. They can have a thematic focus. SEMS used to have a governing theme for the conference. If you remember, I think New Orleans or, you know, Los Angeles was the last time we did that you know, somehow abandoned that. And, and, and in some cases, that's right, because it, the field has gone so large that it's not easy to have a theme that everybody must, everybody must comply to in a 2,000-person conference. But SIGs can organize, you know, year-round events in collaboration with other organizations. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, SIGs, because they're smaller and more manageable, if they're given their own identity and some sort of, for instance, this is something might want to work on, competitive mechanism to apply for more substantial funds, Right or internal mechanism to fundraise and have a matching scheme or you know waivers you know for things that they want to do registration waivers these are all things we might want to talk about from our members but I think first we want to know what it is they want to do right so one of the things I want to do is to gather some data from the members from the chairs and and see you know what direction they want to go if we want to again press for some of the issues like you know guaranteed panel acceptance or if we want to go for this model of decentralized you know more and smaller conference i think a lot of our members would like that the society also must have i think a mechanism through which SIGs can sponsor or be experts in position you know or white papers or position taking papers the society in general is very reluctant, as it should, I think, to take a position in political you know, affairs, apart from the more obvious ones, with regard to copyright, for instance, or with regard to issues like you know, film and media and K-12 through education that we haven't even talked about very much at all. Why shouldn't SIGs that gather experts have a voice in crafting statements and, and disseminating them? So that's something else that, where they can have an actual impact. Excellent. Okay. Well, this is one of those conversations where you go in thinking you understand pretty much the issues. And then I say you, I mean me. Right. <laughs> I learned that it's actually a lot more complicated and a lot more interesting than I expected. Um, so thank you for that. This was a great conversation. No problem. Thank you. And uh, yeah. All right. Thank you, Bill, for having that conversation with Dimitri Latsis. 
I think sometimes these organizations seem a little opaque and it's hard to find your way in them. And SIGs are a really, really great way to connect with people who uh, share your interests. Definitely. And this idea, Bill's had this idea for a while, um, but in particular, the last, uh, I don't know, there was some SEMS meeting we had and we were all uh, talking, I think maybe it was the policy um I think it was the policy committee maybe. And we were talking about, we didn't, we weren't sure what was like the responsibility of the policy committee or is this the, you know, precarious labor. And so there was this conversation had by people who've been in SEMS a very long time about not being sure what everyone's duties are and where people's interests were. And so he wanted to do this series. And I think this conversation he had with Dimitri is very instructive in terms of there's a lot of SIGs and they obviously have their own as the name says, scholarly interests, but there's also various goals and motivations and structures that work better for some and not for others. So I think that's something I, I really look forward to hearing more of Bill's conversations with individual SIGs about that. So stay tuned for more of that. More Bill coming up. I know, Bill, I mean, the thing is, he's like he's like this kind of quiet ringer, right? Mm. You know, he's kind of shy and quiet and retreating. And, right. You know. We have successfully uh, deployed him now. Like, he's probably really good at karaoke. Oh. You know, he's probably one of those who's like, oh, no, no, no. Is this, now this is going to be our campaign to get him to sing karaoke in Chicago at the SCMS yeah. 22 conference. Yeah. So let's. I, I let, think so. Let's all yeah. join the campaign. Okay. Hashtag get Bill to karaoke. Sing it, Bill. All right. Okay. Next up, we get to hear people getting grumpy about comedy. Yeah, and give us really interesting uh, academic insights about comedy. Those two can be one and the same. I think I think uh, anger and insight are really, really <laughs> like that's a that's a that's a pairing that like I feel like that's a successful day. Right. And so again, this is organized by Phil Sapansky. He moderates the conversation with Kathy Fuller Seeley, Al Martin, Matt Sinkowitz, and Jacqueline Johnson. Take it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this discussion of Rolling Stone's top 100 sitcoms of all time. I uh, thought we would just start with a, a brief moment to introduce ourselves. Hey, I'm Kathy fuller Seely. Uh, I've written a book called uh, Jack Benny and the Golden Age of American Radio Comedy, and I'm glad to be here. And uh, I'm Matt Sinkowitz. I, I teach at Boston College. Uh, I co-edited the Comedy Studies Reader. I think that's probably my, my top comedy credential at the moment. I'm Al Martin. I am author of The Generic Closet, Black Gayness and the Black Cast Sitcom, and an assistant professor at University of Iowa. Hello, everyone. My name is Jackie Johnson. I am a PhD student at the University of Southern California. Um, and I guess my top comedy credentials that I've been watching sitcoms my whole life. And your dad works in or used to work in sitcoms. True. Also true. And I'm Phil Sapansky. I'm an assistant professor at Marist College, uh, and I'm the author of Tragedy Plus Time, National Trauma and Television Comedy. Thank you all for being here. We have a real blue ribbon panel of comedy experts here. And thank you to our very supportive SIG organizations, the Comedy and Humor Studies, as well as the Television Studies Scholarly Interest Groups for sponsoring this. I just wanted to start by asking what your general uh, impressions are of this list. Al, I know you've got something. Let's hear it. <laughs> well, I mean, the title was interesting for me. I will cop to the idea that I think that sitcom is a particular kind of television unit and that a television comedy is different. 
So when they took the time in sort of their methodology to parse their exclusion of, say, The Muppet Show and SNL, I just found the inclusion of things like Insecure and even Schitt's Creek, um, aside from the presentist logic of them and like trying to deem them best when they're sort of still happening or just finished. Um, I just found this list kind of schizophrenic in the sense that, for me, a sitcom is a multicam laugh track thing. And so I just was stumbling in, in various places, even as Yay Daria. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a similar uh, response, particularly with regards to, to the animated shows, which, you know, on the one hand, I mean, those are uh, most of those that are on the list, uh, you know, from Simpsons to Daria to, I mean, Rick and Morty. I mean, I, I love uh, a lot of these shows, basically all of them that are on there. And yet I found myself getting very, uh, I think, Al, you suggest this too, a little essentialist as to, to what a sitcom is, right? I wanted to define it more narrowly. And in doing so, I found myself like trying to define out something, even like The Simpsons. Uh, I mean, Al talks about the formal stuff, the three cam, and that that's part of it. Uh, to me, I think I came to uh, the essence being sort of the, uh, the skill and, and comedy with which a show uh, takes stasis, disrupts stasis, and brings it back in a narrative. And animated sitcoms have such, or animated shows have such an advantage, right? You just send Homer to outer space and you bring him back and Bart never goes through puberty. So you don't have to deal with, you know, uh, there's something about that where I wanted to discount them, not for not being great, but for not quite being like, not doing the things that sitcoms need to do. So I think me and Al are, are on similar pages there. I was really interested in just like borders in general and where they put the borders around kind of what a sitcom is. A lot of these are shows that have some comedy. Fleabag was the one where I was essentially like, we've completely lost the plot, even though I love the show so much. Mm. Um, and also kind of the national border. So primarily, obviously, American shows, but like a sprinkle of Canada and then a lot of UK shows and one random Australian show. And I was kind of very curious about how that was decided. I completely agree with everyone. And I was also thinking I'd uh, made a joke to Phil earlier about the clickbait aspect of, of uh, this list, that who was it meant for? If it's meant for readers of Rolling Stone, then it's hipster guys in their 60s who still like Led Zeppelin, but maybe watch a few things. <laughs> so I, was, I was wondering why the, the bit of pandering to present day comedies to pull in readers. So one list of 100, I thought was not as useful. It was a real mixed bag, but maybe five lists of 20 where the criteria could be laid out about most innovative, you know, most culturally connected, uh, most slapstick, most other things. And on top of that, Jack Benny doesn't really belong in the list list at all. But hey, I wrote a book about Jack Benny, so how can I trash my own heroes? Jack Benny only sometimes made a, a situation comedy flavored episode and they're not necessarily the best ones but the television show was just so much more often a variety show and something like that that broke the fourth wall of a sitcom so i'll add if you wanted to put famous sitcoms the first television sitcom is ethel and albert i want ethel and albert on my list now, see, I was going to argue for a more inclusive uh, definition of sitcoms because I was going to argue that SCTV and The Muppet Show um, are workplace sitcoms. 
So there's there's a weird way in which it almost felt like the group of folks who got together to do this got together in a room and sort of said, these are shows we like, let's rank them, and then we'll figure it out. Um, I will say this. I do appreciate that they were very cognizant about about race, but I just don't think anything can be best when it is legit still or like very recently out of production. Um, and I think, you know, particularly Kathy, because Kathy is the, the for real trained historian here, um, is that we can't really know history in the moment or we can't know impact or import in the moment. And I love me some Shit's Creek. I like, I cried like a baby on the finale. But even for Shit's Creek to barely make it into the top 100, I was just like, really? Like, can we wait 10 years? Like, can we wait until we're doing this in 2031 to like, to see if Shit's Creek actually is a thing that holds up? I will also add, I kind of wanted some consideration of like things that hold up. Because, like, Sex in the City might have been important. Sex in the City don't hold up. Maud doesn't really hold up. I will cry and wear black the day that Candace Bergen dies. But, like, Murphy Brown doesn't really hold up. And also, even though I can't stand her as a person, justice for um, Ellen. Because, I mean, justice for Spin City. For being the first show that actually features a recurring gay character who is also gay and black and not black gay, but we can, you can read my book to figure out what I feel about that. It was, it was just weird. Al, I completely agree with you. And this is Kathy again. It's, I think the problem is trying to make one list with too many different criteria mixed in there. Maybe we need an NCAA playoff with each region being the the first to do these things or the, you know, versus the cultural ones. And it would still be impossible if you have to have Maud uh, face off with Daria and, you know, and Shit's Creek meet Seinfeld. It, it's all kind of ridiculous. I think it's hard to come up with objective criteria. Can anything be objective? Each of us, I think a sitcom is something we appreciate intellectually, but also something we grew up with or enjoy, you know, I mean, the kind of affect of sitcom, those that we enjoyed the most. So it's brave of anybody uh, to make a list to catch our scorn. I want to follow Al's lead in thinking about maybe what are some of the shows that we think don't deserve to be on this list or shows that never connected with us. I, for one, have never really been able to appreciate All in the Family. And that's the top one for me that I just cannot get into. I'll go on the, the not, not. I don't think it's going to hold up. Maybe maybe it's controversial, maybe not. But, but community up that high on this list for what is a, a very on and off high concept thing. I mean, it had sort of a, a definite zeitgeist feel to it. It felt very much of the moment and so much of the moment that I suspect that when we're uh, far enough away from that moment, it'll look like a, like a pretty good sketch comedy show with some like great performances for sure. But sort of the, the, this kind of grab bag thing that tells us a lot about when it was made, but maybe doesn't have that long term. I mean, finally, that's the show that I, I very much enjoyed when I played and when I try to go back to it every time, it's like, that's a little bit farther in that distance. And like, I appreciate it conceptually, but kind of don't need 22 minutes uh, of it uh, with exceptions here and there. So I'll say, you know, if that was in like the, the Schitt's Creek spot of 100, I, maybe, maybe at 22 or whatever it is, one of the last top third, I, I don't see that personally. It is 24 slash eight 
places ranked higher than the bloody Golden Girls. Yeah, that's silly. And listen, besides my sort of affective love for Golden Girls and my own research interest in Golden Girls, come on, y'all. Like, that is, I believe, the um, oldest show that has never been off the air since it stopped producing um, new episodes. Which speaks to, if we're talking about best, it speaks to the idea that not only was it good and highly rated in its moment, but it continues to resonate in some way with audiences from 1985 when it premiered to 2021 when it is airing. And the ways in which it has been syndicated is that it plays for Logo. It plays for Lifetime. It plays for um, all of these other spaces, which to me speaks to the idea of its bestness in a way that I would argue similarly for uh, for Matt. And I hate to keep ragging on the ladies of Sex and the City, but like Sex and the City was super important in like 1998. <laughs> like by the time 2010 came around, it just looked aged as does Murphy Brown, as does Designing Women. Yeah, this is Jackie speaking. Um, For me, this is partly about taste, but partly also about what you guys are discussing, about like what's going to kind of hold up um, as time goes on. The shows where I guess the intended audience is probably like adolescent white boys were the ones that I was like, shouldn't like the South Park was the highest rated one that I was like, okay, absolutely not. Like personally, not to my taste. But I also just think... I don't know if I watch South Park in 30 years. I will, like, cringe way too hard at some of the humor and some of the delivery of some of the jokes. For me, like, that show, I was like, maybe not. I couldn't understand why Brooklyn Nine-Nine was on the list. Like, I mean, it just doesn't. The only show on this list that probably has less appeal for me than Brooklyn Nine-Nine is Friends. Well, actually, no. Friends slash Seinfeld. Like, no offense. Like, those were shows for white people. And, like, bless them. Have your shows and live your truth. But they just never, ever, ever, ever appeal to me. Al, that's a great point. And so, again, to making several different lists, if there's one list just based on ratings, popularity, the sort of middle of the road, uh, folks, that's where I would put all those shows that I've never cared for at all. And also Big Bang Theory, which is the one I go, oh, that's the worst show in the history of the world. And the rest of my family loves it. (laughs) So there is no accounting. There is no accounting for taste, but. Yeah, and Big Bang Theory, and I also think How I Met Your Mother, which I feel kind of similarly about, are like higher than a different world. And I was like, we already know I'm not going to like this list. I was going to say a different world was one that pleasantly surprised me. I think in some ways it lives in Cosby's shadow as a spinoff. But are there other sort of pleasant surprises for you? Ones that you didn't think would be included, but were? Well, I'll switch it around to say I was, being someone who's 61 years old, I was appalled at the lack of 60s sitcoms. I want to vote for Gilligan's Island and Green Acres. Green Acres, definitely. And I'll still ironically vote for Gilligan's Island. Where, But uh, if you think that the f- um, feminist comedy scholars have done so much with the power of, of women who can twitch their nose, the magical power of women in the 60s, there might be a small category for things that were kind of just popular and meh in the day, uh, but that we've found new relevance or new interest in, in mining old gold. 
I think Bewitched is a is an and that would be the Fantasticom that I would put on there if I had to pick one. Now I'm kind of a I'm fascinated by Hogan's Heroes. I understand why you wouldn't include that, um, but it's got a really fascinating backstory, and you know half the cast had escaped the Holocaust in some form or another. The Monkees is also a really formally innovative show that, in a lot of ways, predicts. Uh, a lot of the stuff like Family Guy and Scrubs that is happening in the 2000s in terms of its use of cutaway gags. So while I earlier mentioned that I was excited that there was at least some attention to um, to race, uh, well, actually, I'm going to say two things. One is that if the new One Day at a Time makes the list and the original doesn't, like that was just a little weird, particularly because I believe one Day at a Time, uh, the original iteration was the first time that we'd actually seen a divorce lady head up a sitcom. As I was sort of looking through the list and thinking about, oh, like, what's not on here? I think Rock should have been on here for its innovation in the 1990s, particularly because uh, midstream, it not only shifted its sitcom, I'm sorry, its theme song in ways similar to um, A Different World, although it, like, completely flipped from... An instrumental song with lyrics by Take Six, I think. So it was sort of like jazzy. And then it moved to In Vogue, a.k.a. the Funky Divas, to sort of appeal to a particular audience at the same time that they switched to a live production because they had a bunch of actors who were trained theater actors. And it also has the distinction of being the first series to actually use the word marriage uh, with respect to a gay couple's ceremony. So I think, again, like, I think best gets at notions of goodness, whatever goodness is. But I think it also should be getting at things around importance. And I mean, and so to your earlier point, Phil, I would suggest that perhaps while I don't really see it for All in the Family, I think All in the Family is important because of the ways that it at least began in some ways this attempt to grapple with social and cultural issues. Also, let me back up for a second. Justice for Fat Albert, too, as well, as edutainment. Yeah, the the Australian show that uh, Jackie had mentioned earlier is Bluey. And I'm a parent of a young child, so I've been exposed to Bluey. Uh, that seems like a particularly odd inclusion, even as a kid's show. Uh, I think there are potentially many other kids' shows that would make more sense, Fat Albert very possibly, you know, being one good inclusion. Uh, particularly if, if, you're, if it's going to be such an American-centric list, and that's the one kids' show that you include, uh, seems a, a bit strange. For me, the most surprising was also Bluey. I've never seen this. Um, I don't have children I've never heard of this show before this list, but I was like, okay, if we're going to do kids' shows, I guess I kind of wanted to see things that were either really, like, formally innovative, or I honestly really was interested in, like, shows for young girls, and I feel like the girls' media is really, like, absent here, and so for me, it's, like, justice for Lizzie McGuire, because not only was that show kind of really innovative for, like, the Disney Channel the star power of Hilary Duff, I just felt like that was like such a formative show just in my own kind of life, but also for the Disney Channel. And I was like, okay, well, if we're doing this, we might as well like really do it. I mean, I'd also, going down this slightly children slash teenage programming 
Say by the Bell. Say by the Bell is so middle brow and preachy and not sexy, but that thing had legs. And also, that's so Raven. Um, because aside from the fact that Raven Simone has among the best comic timing in the business, it was just a really, really good show. And I would take That's So Raven over Blackish any day. Agreed. That's So Raven is my favorite live studio audience memory. I think family based sitcoms are a bit underrepresented. Here again, the ones of the 50s, which did have a bunch of influence. You know, even though it's hard to watch Father Knows Best and the Donna Reed show today, for their gender roles, it was the early teen media with the all-knowing parents there on the side to uh, to push them back toward the right. But again, uh, uh, maybe another list. What do you salvage from that era of sitcom history? I just want to come back to my feelings about Blackish. I feel like Blackish is the show where, like, the, the people who sat around the room was like, oh, shit, we need Black people. Oh, Blackish is on, so, like, let's put it on the list. I mean, Blackish had a moment, but, like, the best, we're, like, putting this shit in a capsule for, like, the next generation. Like, after the meteors, like, take us out, this is what's in the time capsule? Come on. If that is what's in the capsule... I actually don't even want to like remember anybody to remember that I was a human. I feel like Blackish is very purposeful in its creation of very special episodes for the sake of winning Emmys, working its way up this list, right? It's very kind of modern family. I mean, it was even, right, I think they were, they used to air next to each other or on the same night at one point. They did. Um, that there is a very kind of like upper middle brow you know, liberal, but not radically so, white person sensibility about, okay, this is the night where ABC is going to do its Emmy bait shows. You know, and it works really well for being on lists like this, too. I also recognize that many of these shows on this list, I'm not the target audience, and that's okay. And listen, we could argue the industry still doesn't really give a shit about viewers who aren't white in 18 to 34. And so... I think the difference in, the, in temporality is that you can actually survive on 6 million of these. Eight. Listen, I think 30 Rock had around 3 to 4 million weekly. And I actually generally love 30 Rock. But 30 Rock gimped along for eons on 3 to 4 million viewers. 3 to 4 million viewers in, like, in 1970 is like, are you kidding? You got to go immediately. And so we're just in a, we're just in a very different televisual environment. And so maybe, Al, that's another reason why you can't really just have one list. You know, because if the ground rules had changed so much, if the intended audiences, if the purpose of these shows, you know, that's it's a little unfair to pit belly laugh broad audience versus very targeted narrow audience and to say one is necessarily better than the other. We've got apples and oranges here. This is also very much a list of the era of narrow casting. It is of a taste culture that narrow casting serves better than broadcasting did as a model. And that's, I mean, I think to my mind, that is one explanation as to its presentist bias. I like though, Al, that you're sort of thinking in terms of like how to scandalize this list to some extent. Um, I'm wondering, so like, you know, some of the things I would think to add to, to really kind of uh, upset people <laughs> for the sake of clickbait 
would be something like Get a Life, if you know the, the Chris Elliott kind of anti-comedy sitcom of, of the late 80s. I'm wondering if anyone else had examples like that that they would have maybe included. I don't know if I have anything to necessarily like scandalize um, the list, but for me, I would just put so much more UPN on here. And it's like so frustrating to me that it, these are like white black shows, like blackish being so hard. And I wish that, yeah, I wish UPN like had its day. The only like black black show on this list, or no, I guess there might be two, is Different World and Living Single. And, and maybe I'd allow good times. But the other shows felt very much black bodies for white people, especially like, no offense, but y'all love y'all some Atlanta. Like, y'all love that show. Guilty. Well, I, I, you know, I think just to sort of finish things up, let's get a little bit more meta and just think about, like, what is it that drives us to make these lists and then to sort of, you know, want to argue about them? Because, you know, full disclosure, what brought me to this was I saw the list and I um, sent it around to a few friends of mine and started kind of arguing about it with people. Uh, so I, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, what what is this drive? And I mean, I think we can all say, you know, clickbait obviously is the the immediate purpose for something like this, you know. But I think for many of us, you know, making little top five lists is is a like a party game that we do. Why? Why do we want to rank and list things like this? I mean, I'll, I'll throw out that part of it is simply to remember. Part of it is uh, the the past is infinite. Right. And uh, the TV past and the sitcom past is nearly infinite Uh, and you can't remember it all. Right. You can't uh, revisit mentally the pleasures of it all. So you have to do something to organize it. You know, I think Kathy's suggestion of of sort of a little less hierarchical version of that is probably more intellectually honest. And there's definitely a sports scorekeeping thing here. But to me, the main thing of going through the list is like, oh, you know, Night Court. Night Court's not the best show in TV history, but I really liked thinking about Night Court for about, I don't know, 45 seconds. And that's what the list did for me. And that's where it's a big hit uh, for me. And I think part of why we do this. Um, I actually, uh, so similar to um, what Matt was saying, I think it's partly about history and trying to, in some ways, get down the history. But I would also add that one of the things that came out of this list for me is that I was like, you know what? It remains dumb that most programs, if they teach TV history at all, try to teach it in one semester anymore. Because there is just so much TV slash TV history. And I think what is really interesting and important about these lists is to think about how taste shift and taste change so that something like Green Acres and Hee Haw that were extraordinarily popular are these things that time forgets because, you know, we basically go from like in the early days, like we had these things and then we had the turn to relevance and then God created HBO and then everything was great. (laughs) Oh, and then like black people had a TV show in the 80s called The Cosby Show. And so I think that's my shtick, is television history in two semesters, like film history. Here, here. I'll get a little bit more critical with my, my thinking about list making. And it's as much a criticism of myself as of anything or anyone. But it's also very much a performance of taste and, and knowledge, right? That we are showing off that we know better than this professional critic or... 
you know, it is this sort of jockeying for position among our friend group. You know, I know better than you what makes a good show. Look, look at what I, some of the stuff that I did. I'll just pick on myself here in this list of, oh, you know, Get a Life is such an important sh show, you know, that uh, of course the, uh, the, up, the middle brow critic of Rolling Stone wouldn't get it or include it, but I know better because I'm a, you know, television expert. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely to establish ourselves as like discerning individuals. And it comes up in this list, especially with programs that have very few episodes. There's something in the middle here that they brag that it only has six episodes. And it's like, you're just putting it here to tell me that you've seen it and no one else has. Yeah, there was a kind of brilliant but canceled like to, to some of the lists as well. It does. It puts to mind uh, the novel and the movie High Fidelity. Uh, and I think about even 20 years ago when I was much more sort of into music scenes that knowing about obscure bands and obscure even genres was this very important way that you kind of showed off who you were, right? But TV maybe didn't have, you couldn't do that as much with the more, you know, the more mass or the most mass uh, medium of television but it becomes something that we can increasingly do because of narrow casting, you know, and show off. And I know I have a few shows that I'm always kind of trying to push on people like this bizarre mockumentary travelogue that was on for six episodes in 2004 on Comedy Central called Gerhardt Renke's Wanderlust. You know, it's like the greatest show you've never heard of. It never gained traction for one reason or another, but you can show that like, you know, you know better than the, than the stupid masses what makes for good TV. And of course, I'm saying this all very tongue in cheek, right? That we shouldn't be as classist as we are, but you know, we are. <laughs> And Phil, I would add in that there's something about, it's more fun to talk about sitcoms than to say the 100 best television dramas, because the sitcom is a particularly television form. There were a few, there were about two or three shows on radio in 1946 that critics started talking about as sitcoms. But television and the sitcom grew up together through commercial television, this perfectly segmented 30-minute thing that might go on for years and years and years, or just six or seven episodes. So it's almost the perfect little TV package. Well, I would also say, right, sitcoms, and comedy in general, but sitcoms, even within the sort of subgenre, have a wider variety. They have always been more distinguishable among themselves. As opposed to, you know, how many dramas can you say were particularly, like, formally innovative? It's like 24 and Hill Street Blues. That's all I got, <laughs> right? I mean, if you were coming up with the, the best dramas currently, it's like on network? Gosh. The five indistinguishable Chicago shows that are essentially just law and order? I mean, to that point, we can't discount the fact that going back to Kathy's uh, notion that the sitcom and TV grew up together... Our current broadcast model is partly built on the idea of syndication. And like we weren't syndicating these police procedurals. We weren't syndicating dramas. We were syndicating sitcoms. And as Tim Havens argues in his book, when we were exporting blackness, we were exporting sitcoms around hip hop kinds of blackness. So it was the Moishas, it was the Fresh Princes that were the things that traveled and became a window into um, sort of a way to, at least in a mediated way, to understand what Black American culture was. 
And so that's why I would argue sitcoms are important. And it's partly also why I study sitcoms, because they, they do have sort of, I would argue, this afterlife in a way, because you can pick up a sitcom. And the great thing about the great sitcoms is that, you know, the theme songs function as act one. Like, and you get into the episode, you already know that George and Wheezy have moved on up to the east side. And so then you can just get into the action. Well, there's a commercial aspect to it that many of the dramas are an hour long. And cable channels and other syndicators found it much easier to play with half-hour businesses. So just sort of, you know, thinking that there are industrial reasons why sitcoms are just so easy to plug in to your empty spot. If you look at what MeTV and some of these other free channels showing all reruns to old folks. Also a lot of Westerns on MeTV, though. You know, Gunsmoke and the Wild Wild West and those types of shows. Which uh, we don't talk that much about Westerns in TV history, I don't think. Unless I'm just not hip to that discussion. I mean, part of it is, I think, you know, the feminist roots of the field. And part of it is probably also, you know, the class of the people that make up the field. I mean, listen, TV studies is driven by our own interests. God, like, y'all got together with y'all other white friends and did Whedon studies and, like, bless y'all's whole entire hearts. And, like, everybody was writing on Buffy. And, like, it doesn't, like, it doesn't matter how many people are watching. It just matters that as TV studies people or as historians or as people who work as journalists, if you take it up and you write about it, you write it into history. I'm of two minds on that, right? So on the one hand, I would say we matter because the stuff that we talk about is more watched and more seen than what a lot of other folks write about. On the other hand, I want to be able to write about Gerhard Renke's Wanderlust uh, and not have people question whether that's publishable or not based on the fact that I'm literally the only person that ever saw it. <laughs> but I mean, but listen, I think I think it's also our charge is to, and particularly contemporarily, because the things that we think are popular, like wasn't nobody really watching Shit's Creek. Like Shit's Creek would have gotten canceled in a broadcast era. So like everybody just calmed down. What it is is that what our job as TV studies people um, and TV historians is, is to suggest Not that it was important because a lot of people were watching, but that it was important for some other reason. That it was important because it showed us something about what the TV industry was up to. Or it showed us something important about how networks were branding their programming. So it can't just be that it was popular because all sorts of things are popular. Golden Girls was popular and very few people have written on Golden Girls. Yeah, Beverly Hillbillies. And listen, Beverly Hillbillies still holds up, by the way. By the way. I think, I mean, I think it being popular can be part of the discussion, right? Particularly if you're doing like ideology criticism, you know, or, or various, well, it's, it's this kind of thing, right? Is if it being popular helps my argument, then I will include it. <laughs> right? my, my, my dissertation advisor once said, and this is one that always sticks with me, is uh, author intentionality is bullshit unless it supports my thesis. And that's the sort of same thing, right? Like, popularity is bullshit unless it supports my thesis. Well, as much as I'm enjoying this conversation, uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. I'm wondering if anyone has any final thoughts about this particular list or lists in general, or let's say television in general. Television rules. 
There you go. Uh, thank you, fellow panelists, for um, making me think about the importance of television for a pleasure and memory and way of connecting other aspects of life as it goes on. I think the one sort of interesting takeaway from this is just to think a little bit too about the extent to which we should be mixing it up and being more controversial in our work uh, and trying to get people engaged, maybe not by making lists necessarily, but by engaging in something, some kind of academic version of, of clickbait without it really being clickbait. Yeah, Phil, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to uh, to engage uh, with the list, and I think thinking about lists and sort of uh, you know you asked us to to theorize lists themselves. I think that's a a very legitimate pursuit intellectually. Uh, also, I I should have brought up the show Dinosaurs at some point, and I regret not doing so. Okay, I like I will yes yes that is a big omission. That show yeah, is fantastic. No, right. uh, well, me and Al have got something in common on that one. Yeah, it also has one of the greatest like dirty clean jokes in it. Uh, they do a puppet. There's a show that they watch. It's a puppet show, and uh, the family is a family of socks. And uh, the sock son brings home a girlfriend, and she is a pair of pantyhose versus socks. And the mother says, "Don't be bringing those hoes in this house." <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Whether or not it makes the final cut, I'm glad that I made sure we discussed dinosaurs. Thank you for thank you for indulging. <laughs> Thank you once again, Kathy, Matt, Al, Jackie, and Chris Becker for hosting us today. And thank you also once again to the uh, Comedy and Humor Studies Scholarly Interest Group as well as the Television Studies Scholarly Interest Group. All right, so... Um it's hard not to have opinions about all this. Yep. And, you know, I don't really blame anybody for putting Sim The Simpsons on the top of a, of a, you know, greatest sitcoms of all time. I mean, that's fine, whatever. Mm. But can you believe what, of putting Friends as number two? Sorry to interrupt. Because I'm editing this piece, I feel like I have to make an intervention to correct the record. I may have based my initial uh, reactions on a Sunny FM listicle that circulated around uh, that summarized the Rolling Stone rankings, and I may have inadvertently mischaracterized the number two show. Um, I thought it was Friends. It was Cheers. It wasn't Friends. It was Cheers. And on the one hand, yeah, Cheers is better than Friends, clearly. But, you know, I'm still number two. Really? No. So I'm going to just kind of go with my gut reaction. But when you hear friends, recognize that what I'm talking about is cheers. Cheers. As number two. Cheers. Ooh. Frosty. Oh. Bina. It hurts the. Oh, Todd's going to have some fun with this one. Getting creative with beeps, or do we let, just let this go? I mean, I don't know. We're all adults here, right? We, there probably aren't children. Well, there might be children in the room. Sweet, that's just so stupid. Ugh. Yeah, that's all I got. That's that's the academic insight. Yeah, that's yeah. you got to be. <laughs> what would you put number two? Oh God, I don't know what I put number. You know what I put number one is? I love Lucy. I love. Lucy right God. there. In fact, you know, we were talking about this. Uh, so we don't have a cinematologist to present it's to you. True. We do not have a cinematologist for you all. But we thought, okay, well, let's reverse this. We used to do this Vox Galari thing where we'd have a question 
and then propose it to, to, to multiple academics and get an answer. So we thought, all right, let's do this. Like if you were inspired and if you weren't inspired by the roundtable, let's ask some questions about this. And so one we got, thought up with, because both of us, uh, Michael and I teach our history of, of television course. Um, I'm doing it this semester. Michael does it all the other times. Um, and the challenge of teaching that course and any TV course, right, is you can't show a whole series. And especially with a history of TV class, you can't spend the entire semester on one series. And so often you can only show one episode. So this is going to be the challenge we throw down. We'll ask you out there. Anyone can email us at info at aca-media.org. Oh, yeah. Boom. And uh, send us your ideas. But then we'll also be reaching out to people. So you're teaching a history of TV class, which can include the present as well, right? Anything from you know, radio all the way through to the current moment. You think there's an, a TV series that is essential for your students to know about, and you can only show one episode. So you raise I Love Lucy. My thought, and maybe it's just because I'm teaching it this week, but I Love Lucy's Vitamina Vegemin episode is superior television. And you can talk about so many things. So aesthetics of, you know, that that mode of shooting for a sitcom uh, with the Tom Schatz article talking about the industry and production and, and Desi Lou. You've got that angle. But especially, I piss myself laughing at that episode. I've seen it so many times. It kills me with with just laughter and i really like to communicate that to my students that something made and i can't remember the year of that episode whatever 53 and i think they think of all this stuff as like very old and they couldn't have been that funny back then right and it's so funny it is so funny and especially performance and kathy fuller seeley on the conversation brought up um the notion of performance um that for me like just to see how funny lucille ball was playing that role that's that's the episode that that pops that's to mind. good that's good and it's got all that it captures so much about the TV production process too. So you can, I usually end up teaching uh, the quiz show scandals and I show mm -hmm. the 21 episode, you yeah. know, the, you know, the kind of classic one. And it has a, it has a Geritol ad built into it that is totally clearly what I love Lucy is playing with. Uh, and it's just so good. Yeah, that's good here. I'll get, I'll pitch one. And to be fair, I don't always show it, but I do love showing it, and I think it works as a single episode, and I think it also works as a really good example of 1960s shot on film um, California production, Dick Van Dyke Show. Mm. Uh, it wouldn't hurt to give us a raise. Oh, that's a great title right there. It is a great title, and, you know— like that I Love Lucy episode, it's got this sort of meta quality so that it's about, uh, you know, it captures something of uh, the production environment of 60s TV. Because the premise is that the writers are pissed off that they're underpaid relative to, you know, the writers on another show. So they, you know, they're trying to get Dick Van Dyke to go get him a raise because he's the head writer and on the Alan Brady show. And he ends up getting shunted off to go talk to the accountant because the entire production is like a, a system of shell corporations. Oh. And they all work for different employers and um, including like, you know, so the reason like the, the writers can't get a raise is because, you know, there was a a tsunami that washed away some shrimp boats in, in uh, Japan. And so, oh my um, goodness. so the writers can't have a raise, but of course, you know, our guy does get a raise. So, uh. it's, you know, it's, you know, it's funny. Um, but it's really great because it's, it is fantastically funny, straight up, just hysterical all by itself. Mm. And then it also is really uh, great for a, a kind of window into production styles of that period yeah and a little bit of social commentary it a sounds little like bit. as well a little bit All right. okay so that that is our challenge to you dear listener gentle listener 
uh, one episode, one show, and why? Yeah. And it better not f- be for cheers. That's the one ban we're 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 censoring here, not just swears, but possible titles. And feel free to swear as much as you want. Yeah. And send us the audio of that because, uh, you know, we'd love to hear your voices. So you might, I don't know, if you want to be anonymous, fine. But uh, just record yourself over your phone. Um, or as I said, we might reach out to you to ask uh, and do a little recording of you. So so send us your thoughts. And if you want to let those stupid sons at Rolling Stone uh, know how you feel about their idiotic top 100 lists, which they do all the time, right? I mean, that it's not like they only savage uh, half-hour comedy. Um Give them an earful. There we go. We've thrown down the gauntlet. Another hashtag. And, you know, we usually end an episode by talking about what we're watching. And I, I wrote down three shows. And, in fact, they're all comedies of, of a sort. Not sitcoms, which I thought Al Martin's point was good about how he has a very kind of prescriptive definition of what a sitcom is. And so most of the things on that list don't count. And then all of mine are, are kind of single cam and tinged. Two of them, at least, tinged with dramedy. One is, is slapsticky. Um, but comedies of a sort, I think, is a way of describing them. So what are your comedies of a sort? All right. So, well, so first of all, you know, that's kind of you don't have much time to watch things. That's why I think I'm in, in comedy mode right now, because like a half hour or 25 minutes, you're in, you're out. And um, all of them now occurs to me. They're also weekly releases. So I have to wait um, with them. And so one of them, I got, I have to comment on Ted Lasso, because not just Ted Lasso, but the Ted Lasso discourse, which has been playing out this season. If you haven't heard it, um, feel yourself or, or um, you know, you're probably lucky to not be on Twitter and following all of this. But uh, there were, first of all, complaints that it was there wasn't enough conflict. Now there are complaints that there's too much conflict and it's too dark. So welcome to comedy hell. Everybody's got a opinion. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, but I'm enjoying it. You know, it's good stuff. Um, the slapsticky one I mentioned is the other two, which is having a really spectacular second mm. season. And then finally, in the category of comedy, but also sad and profound, is Reservation Dogs on FX, which oh, is yeah. all indigenous uh, writing team, mostly indigenous cast, and is just superb, and especially gets better with each and every episode. And the last two, um, the episode titled Hunting in particular, was just exquisite and is going to stick with me for a while. Um, so Reservation Dogs, highly recommend. Excellent. Um, those all, all are more interesting than, than what I would have said i just finished watching the chair oh yes the chair there's some really good stuff and good performances even uh from kind of people in shitty roles Mm. holland taylor is amazing the you know there's there's plenty of good stuff it's i suppose as a representation of academics on tv it's not as horrible as many Mm. um so it's a i you know a qualified recommendation at best. I don't know if you've seen it, but I haven't. It's on my list. And actually my dad, my uh, soon to be 80 year old dad, um, he watches Netflix. He has my password and, uh, he suggested, he's like, Oh, I watched the first 10 minutes of the chair. I think you'd like it. I'm like, okay, thanks dad. So we'll see what he learns about academia. He's also, um, be intrigued to, to hear what he, he, he thinks he learns about academia from it. Cause that could be dodgy when you're talking about, you know, your, your parents and your grandparents and things they're learning about academia. Yeah. Um, well, you know, my dad, I think my dad thought I got a PhD in setting VCR clocks. So, okay. so I think the chair will probably, you know, come through at least 
in some way. Right. Um, the other thing I want to mention, again, it's been a, a long gap since we last talked, and I watched uh, over summer on, on Apple Plus, um, For All Mankind, uh-huh. which I want to put in place, this conversation, or this happened in the roundtable too, about you know things that are funny but aren't necessarily comedies. And For All Mankind's not funny. It's, it's a drama and it's serious. Um, but the thing is, it's second season finale is so good. I started laughing because it brings together just all kinds of disparate um, not disparate, but it brings together all kinds of plot lines from both seasons and then has them all culminate in this second series finale. And it's just a ridiculous nail biting hour from one crazy situation to the next. And I literally just started laughing at the audacity of this episode. Nice. So uh, yeah, I might've laughed. I certainly laughed harder at that than like Ted Lasso, <laughs> but because I was just kind of in awe of how good that was as a finale, putting all the pieces together. Okay, that that's a pretty good recommendation. That's you know I think this conversation is reminding me that I really need to stop watching Scandinavian War. Oh well, like, you know, you know, I'm so I'm I like get up every morning and check to see if a, if the new season of Trapped has come out. Mm. You know, I'm trying to work on my Icelandic and well, winter is coming. That yeah, might be appropriate. Oh man, I, it feels like winter's been here for about two years. So. <laughs> Not only winter is coming, winter won't go away. On that note, send us your ideas about what you uh, would teach and why. Yeah, but but thank you. Uh, And so first of all, thank you to Phil Sapansky for bringing this idea to us and also his participants, Kathy Fuller-Seely, Al Martin, Matt Sinkowitz, and Jackie Johnson. Yes, indeed. Uh, And we are also appreciative to our comrade-in-arms, Bill Kirkpatrick. And Dimitri Lotsis, thank you so much. Stay tuned for more in that conversation. Uh, we also are very grateful for the help of our co-conspirators and um, fellow obnoxious <laughs> like Todd Thompson uh, down at UT Austin. We also have to note Bill Kirkpatrick has a new home. So he is now in the sociology department at the University of Winnipeg in Manitoba, Canada. He is a Canadian now. Hey, right, man. Oh, yeah. Dube found a way to escape. Well done, Bill. Still stuck back here in America, we have Stephanie Brown at Westchester University, Joel Neville Anderson at Purchase College, and Frank Mondelli at Stanford University. All right, all you sun enjoy the fall semester as best you can, and stay frosty. Fuck yeah.